You may be seated. And I invite you to turn once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll read verses 2 through 16 this morning. And uh, so far in our series in 2 Corinthians, we've heard uh, a lot about how we are called to live for Jesus and walk with Jesus in conflict. And very little of what Jesus has told us is easy. Uh, It's not easy to hear, and it's not easy to do. Turning and forgiving a repentant sinner and openly, openly welcoming them in public, showing them love and care, learning to look at each other through God's gospel promises, treating everyone as someone who God wants to befriend, uh, believing that the Spirit is actually present and active in a conflict, or as we heard last week, separating ourselves from groups of Christians who don't want to live by faith in conflict, and joining those Christians who do want to actually publicly forgive sinners and see everyone through the gospel and be loving in Christ's name. None of that is easy. It's not easy to hear, it's not easy to do, and in fact, it's scary, isn't it? It's tiring, I think, even just to think about it, right? You go through that list, and at the end, you're like, oh, wow, I I need a nap. Um, And yet, Jesus puts all of this at the heart of our tensions and conflicts with each other. It's all at the heart of reconciliation. All of this is what it means to walk by faith with Jesus in a fallen world with fallen people who want to follow the risen Christ who made peace between us by the blood of his cross and who then calls us to take up our crosses in his name as his disciples and follow him. Well, Jesus has one more thing to talk about on church conflict before he starts talking about generosity and ministry and diaconal aid that starts in chapter 8. And honestly, as encouraging and uh, as celebratory as Paul's words are here at at the end, uh, it might actually be the hardest thing to hear so far. You're going to hear Paul say in a section where I think he says a number of things that sort of raise an eyebrow, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now we're going to talk about this, but I think by godly grief... Part of what Paul means is godly guilt. Uh, I have a friend who used to joke that his mother was the distributor of guilt on the West Coast. Uh, And my kids might be thinking, well, Dad, does that make you the Midwest distributor of guilt? Right, from Wyoming to Ohio. If you need guilt, just come to our dad. Um, All joking aside, uh, we do everything we can to avoid guilt trips. Uh, In our healthy moments, we don't want to send people on guilt trips. We don't want to make people feel bad. And when you're in conflict with people you love, you normally try to avoid creating more negative feelings because you know that creating more negative feelings can make the conflict worse. And yet for Paul, who apparently struggled with the same fears, you're going to hear him say this too. For even though I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you. Uh, Paul struggled with producing bad feelings in people he loved, who he was in conflict with, and yet he rejoices at the grief that was caused because it was godly and very interestingly led to salvation without regret. All of which shows us that how we deal with the pain and the guilt and hardship of conflict and forgiveness matters to experiencing what Paul calls salvation without regret. And we're going to unpack that 
But on first hearing, I hope we can say that that's all something we clearly want, right? I don't like regret. regret. I love salvation. Like, let's put them together in the right way in our lives so that we don't have regret and have salvation. Like, let's have that. How do we have that? Well, that's what we're going to explore this morning by looking at four aspects of our passage. The first is Paul's great pride in the Corinthians. The second, godly grief produces salvation without regret. The third, how godly grief shows itself in practice. And then four, confidence for the future. So let's read 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16. We'll pray and then we'll unpack all of this. And kids, uh, pay close attention. See if you can hear the verses that I referenced here in the, in the introduction as we read. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Let's hear God's word. <clears throat> Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word, uh, which we know uh, instructs us on the power of godly grief and uh, repentance that comes from it and the experience of a salvation without regret. Uh, Lord, this is something we all desire to understand more, and yet we know that without your Spirit, uh, this powerful word will not bless us in this way. And so, Father, we pray that your Spirit would go forth with the word, not only as it was read, but as it is meditated on and reflected here in the sermon. 
and that uh, your spirit would give us minds to understand your word, ears to hear it, and hearts to believe it. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and uh, the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may they all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't 2 Corinthians just like a rad book? I mean, you just read it like, this is so powerful. Um, the first thing I want to look at from our passage this morning is Paul's great pride in the Corinthians. And that comes from verse 4, where Paul says outright, I have great pride in you. It also comes from verse 14, where Paul and Timothy celebrate their boasting about the Corinthians to Titus. Then the fact that that boasting proved true, right? And you really only boast about things you have pride in. And I want to look at this because I think there's something here that's very helpful in understanding how to move forward in certain kinds of conflicts with certain kinds of people. So just before this in verse 2, Paul again calls them to open their hearts wide to him, and he reminds them that they have not been harmed by him. Right? Verse 2, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. And his point is uh, not only that they don't deserve the distrust the Corinthians have been showing them that we've been talking about throughout the letter, he's also making the point, you don't need to be afraid of us. We haven't hurt you. We haven't stolen from you. Uh, we haven't corrupted your relationships or harmed your ability to grow in your relationship with Jesus or with each other in Jesus. And then in verse 3, he says something very interesting. He says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So just because I think this is funny, the Greek word correctly translated as condemn may also mean doom. And uh, he's saying, I don't say this to doom you. And when I learned that, I sort of imagined this conversation where you're hashing it out with someone and telling them like, hey, I'm not saying this to doom you. Uh, and I thought that made me laugh. And I thought that might, you might make you laugh too a little bit. Uh, but then I realized there's also something sort of profoundly important about Jesus having Paul choose this word, because it doesn't just mean condemn in the sense of like, I'm pointing out you did something wrong. You're bad. It also means there's a dire consequence for that wrong. You did something wrong, and now something terrible is going to happen as a consequence of what you've done. And isn't it the case that when we're pointing out to someone that they are or have mistreated us, that there can be an implied threat in pointing that out. Because if the problem is serious enough and the wound is deep enough, the implied threat can be our relationship is going to end now. There's doom in it. Paul says there's no doom here. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And without re-preaching the sermon from a few weeks ago, Paul's point is we love you in Christ. We look at you with God's gospel vision. We treat you like God treats us as his friends. We carry around the death of Jesus in us by enduring the cost of forgiving you and the sacrifice of being reconciled to you so that the life of Jesus will be revealed and experienced by you. Right? That's just uh, earlier on in 2 Corinthians. And so you see, one of the things Paul is doing here is saying that the relationship we have in Christ is so important that as far as it depends on them, as far as it depends on us, we are not going to give that up. We are going to hold you in our hearts, even though holding you in our hearts hurts. 
We're going to work with you, pray for you. We're going to pray with you. We are not going to give you up to insults muttered in our hearts, to shrugged shoulders, and to bitter words. We're not going to do that. So I think that's very helpful and very interesting to see. I think it's immediately applicable to all of us. But at the same time, it doesn't really answer the main question we have, which is why does Paul then have great pride in the Corinthian church? Like, Why does he go from, these are all the things that we are doing for you, to I have great pride in you? And I think that question is important because while we see the same kind of struggle, the same kind of longing and conflict with other Christians that Paul has a relationship with, you can see this in the letter to Galatians, to Philemon, to the Thessalonians, you don't really hear, surprisingly, about Paul's pride in them. Especially when he's in the middle of a strong conflict. He doesn't say this to the Galatian church. Why? Why does Paul have great pride in the Corinthians? Well, the answer seems to be that Paul has pride in them because throughout their relationship together, which has been fraught from the very beginning with misunderstanding, sin, church discipline, lying, slander, all the things we've been talking about. Just read 1 Corinthians if you want to get a sense of sort of what's going on. In all of this, the history of their relationship together is that the Corinthians ultimately respond with Christian love and Christian mercy and Christian forgiveness and Christian reconciliation and holiness. That is, they have a history of hearing the word of Christ in conflict, turning to Christ in conflict, and by faith working to live just a little bit more like Christ in conflict. And that's why we read in verses 5 through 7 these words. For even when we came, verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Uh, So after leaving Corinth, after the church was planted, Paul went to Macedonia, which is where Philippi and Ephesus were. Uh, We don't know exactly what dangers Paul is referring to when he talks about fighting without and fear within, but it seems likely that it refers to the anti-gospel riots of Ephesus and the death threats and the things you can read about in Acts chapter 19. And in the middle of that conflict, Paul and Timothy are addressing the problems in Corinth. And you get a real sense here of just the, the team effort, right? We've talked about the letters, we've talked about the visits, but you also get a sense of like Paul is talking with other pastors and these pastors are going and taking visits to Corinth and they're coming back and forth. That's what Titus is doing. So in the middle of all of this, they're sending Titus out with some pastoral counsel. He returns, and he comes carrying news of the Corinthians' response. And they are comforted by the fact that the Corinthians responded well, that they were grieved that they hurt Paul and Timothy, that they wanted to repair their relationship. I mean, what a comforting thing to have the people you poured yourself into and loved for you know, a year or so, prayed for, that they don't want to walk away from you when there's a struggle. Instead, they want to draw near and fix it and pour themselves back into you. You see, Paul's pride comes from the fact that they have responded well in the past. 
And that's why, unlike the Galatian church, for instance, he says in verse 4, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Right? Because they have a track record of dealing well with conflict, of listening and repenting and drawing closer to Jesus, Paul can be bold in directly, the way he directly addresses things. He can have confidence. He can have joy. He can have comfort. Now, not every relationship is like this. Paul doesn't take this approach with every church, right? He longs for reconciliation with everyone, but he doesn't boast in everyone because not everyone is the same track record of handling conflict well. And in that light, there's something else here that's also helpful for us to notice, which is Paul is able to look at their current conflict in light of their whole relationship. Paul doesn't have tunnel vision that only sees the hurt and pain of the now. Right? He has the wider vision that sees how God has worked in the past in them, how they have loved Jesus together in the past, how they've loved him in the past. And from that wider historical vision of their life with Christ, he can talk the way he does now in the present. And I'm confident that he has this wider vision because of his prayers for them, as he talks about, and also because of the conversations that he has with other mature Christians like Titus and Timothy, who are also involved in this relationship together. And through prayer and conversation with other mature Christians, we can also stay away from tunnel vision that sees only our present hurt and can ignore the way that Jesus has worked among us together in the past because we don't want to miss the way that he's working with us now in the present. I think there's some powerful lessons here for uh, dealing with church conflict from Paul's end. And uh, the first point got a little longer than I planned, so I'm just going to move on uh, to our second point, which is godly grief produces salvation without regret. Um, So as he's remembering this past together and the way that they've responded to the gospel together and what Jesus has done for them, He uses that to explain why he said some of the hard things he did in previous letters and in previous visits. That's verses 8 and 9. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So first, uh, I think it's interesting to point out that the biblical writers knew that they were writing inspired scripture. They were aware of what they were doing. So when Paul says that he regretted what he had said before in his previous letter, I think it raises the question of like, what does that mean? And without getting sort of too far into the weeds, the possible meaning that I think it means here is that Paul was afraid that by giving them God's word, he would provoke them to moving away from Jesus and away from himself. And I think that because that's such a familiar feeling in conflict. Haven't you ever thought, well, if I tell them what Jesus says, they'll never talk to me again. And like us, Paul is admitting to the same kind of experience of telling people what Jesus says and then never hearing from them again. It's not an irrational fear. 
And it's good for us to see that even the Apostle Paul was afraid of losing relationships that he had spent years cultivating because of Jesus' word. And I think it's even better for us to see that even with that fear, he still faithfully and wisely and lovingly delivered the word anyway. And notice how happy Paul is that he, he did, because the, the word did a work in their lives. It made them grieve and repent. So when they heard how their actions and words and church culture were offending Jesus, hurting Paul, harming others, they felt bad, and then they repented. They made changes, actual changes to how they talked and to what they did, how they conducted a worship service, how they welcomed the poor and treated visitors, and how they dealt with very public, very offensive sins. And because of that repentance, as Paul says at the end of verse 9, they didn't suffer loss, meaning they didn't put up a wall between themselves and Jesus, or destroy their church family, or harm their relationships within the church or with the larger church. And we know that that's what he means because of what Paul says in verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So here Paul is not saying feeling sad gets you into heaven. Uh, we tend to use the word salvation much more narrowly than the Bible does. And that's fine just so long as we recognize that in the Bible, salvation doesn't only mean having your sins forgiven. It does mean that. It also means being adopted into God's family. It means being given an inheritance that is kept safe with Jesus, which is why in the Bible, Old and New Testament, salvation also means being brought into the church and living life together in the church because Jesus' family is the church. We are Christ's inheritance. We are his treasure. Salvation is receiving all the things that Jesus receives as a gift from the Father after his crucifixion, which is us and our eternal life with him. Salvation includes then forgiveness, and it includes life together as God's people, as his redeemed family. And it's that aspect of life together, of salvation being the thing we experience as the church family, as we live together with Christ and for him, that Paul means when he talks about salvation here. When we are grieved and saddened and when we feel guilty for the, the times when we've strained, damaged, or even broken fellowship within the church, and when that grief turns into repentance, which includes things like confession, changed behavior, prayer, public welcome, all the things that Paul's been talking about, it produces, by God's grace, a healthier church family. It makes the salvation we have more palpable, more touchable, more real, because we are tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord in our lives in real time. And also because it involves open acknowledgement of hurt, open forgiveness, open welcome, it then removes regret. Because what is regret? Oh, if only I would have said, I'm sorry. If only I would have told them I forgive them. If only I would have actually, you know, told them how much I was hurt by their behavior. If only I would have welcomed that family. That's regret. 
When we in Jesus' name admit our failures and work to reconcile ourselves to each other in his name and by his grace, it removes regret. And it allows us to see our future life together, our salvation with greater and greater clarity and with more and more real-time, right-now experience. And that's why Paul is so happy, we mean not so happy, but glad that the Corinthians felt the pangs of guilt and sorrow and that it motivated them to then choose to walk by faith with Jesus and to see each other through the gospel, to treat each other as those whom God wants to befriend and is in fact friends with and to forgive them and to repent and to love each other again in Christ's name. Time has flown, uh, but I think it's important to know what godly grief looks like in practice, to take that and to expand it out a little bit, and that's verse 11. Uh, I think I'll just read verse 11 and make a few brief comments here so we can kind of define this. So verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Uh, So very quickly, here's what godly grief looks like in practice. It looks like a strong desire to clear yourself of a legitimate charge. It looks like indignation, uh, which in this context doesn't mean being affronted that people uh, that you are you know, being called on in sin, it means being affronted that people would be afraid that you don't care about them or that you want to walk away. You're not going to leave too, are you? No. Why would you think that? I love you in Christ. Fear most likely refers to the fear of the Lord, which would mean reverence for Jesus. Godly grief looks like the desire to obey Jesus and to follow him. And zeal means doing it passionately. So godly grief looks like being affronted that someone thinks you're going to leave them. And it says, no, I would never do that. I love Christ. I love you. And we're going to follow him together in our life with all the passion that I can muster. The word punishment is not my favorite translation there. I think works of righteousness is actually a better transitional phrase for what's being said because the point is not that the Corinthians hurt themselves. Paul is not celebrating the you know, sort of self-flagellation. We beat ourselves up. You know, good job telling him, telling yourself that you're stupid and don't know what you're doing. That's not his point. The point is that they work to make it right. The word there is to strive means to get gets at meaning to strive to repair a relationship. Godly grief puts effort into doing works of righteousness in place of lawlessness, to repairing bridges that were burned or broken by my actions. Which is why Paul says at every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. And by that Paul doesn't mean like, oh I guess I was wrong about what I said about you. He means you fixed the problem. You made the changes. You've grown in faithfulness to Jesus. And so in summary then, godly grief is affronted that you're afraid that you're going to walk away from them even though you've been called out on sin. It wants to solve the problem in Jesus' name with a zeal to honor him and show love for Christ and for each other. It, uh, it, it, and then it works... Uh, 
to replace sin with righteousness and to actually solve the problem and to build your life back together in Christ. Uh, We're out of time. So let me just conclude with this. In verses 14 and 15, Paul talks about how Titus is just as excited about the Corinthians as he is, which I think is pretty cool to see, right? All the people involved in this conflict, they're all excited about what's going on, even though there's still tension. How often do you see that in the life of the church? Here it is in 2 Corinthians. Why is Titus excited? Well, because like him, he's because like Paul, he's learned how faithful in conflict the Corinthians are. And that makes him very conf- confident that these current conflicts will turn out like the last one, with godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And what this shows us, my friends, is that one benchmark of our health as a church is how we deal with conflict when it happens. And what I hope can be said of us and will be said of us is that when we have conflicts, they will produce in us godly grief that produces a a, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Because what Jesus wants for us is to be a people who are who can be called out on sin, who develop a track record not of justifying it, but of repenting and working for righteousness instead, and who are concerned deeply to our very bones that our relationship together will be strengthened and maintained because in Christ we are one. So let's pray that when we are confronted by our sin and even when we're hurt by that confrontation, that we will respond with godly grief and a repentance that leads to a salvation without regret, all to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, help us to be a people who, when confronted with our sins and failures, hear the word of Christ and experience godly grief, and so produce a repentance that experiences the blessings of your salvation without regret. Uh, Please help us to be a people who are known for faithfulness to your word, even in conflict. And please also help us to be a people who avoid tunnel vision when we're in conflict. Please help us by your spirit to see uh, all our conflicts in the wider context of what you have done and what you are doing in our lives so that we would respond well to each other and even where appropriate, have pride in the way our Christian brothers and sisters have shown their faithfulness to you in the past and are seeking to be faithful to you in the present. And uh, may we be numbered among them. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.